The reading this morning comes from Mark 6, verses 6 to 30. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went, out, went about the, among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent him and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is today's reading. Good morning. Crazy story. Can't make a movie about this one. It's, it's everything, right? It's... It's seduction and murder and adultery and stupidity and all the vices wrapped into one. But here it is, it's scripture. And we are charged to read it, to find its meaning for us. Uh, It's been a good week in discerning this. The last time we were together in Mark, we read about Jesus' rejection by his own, his kindred, his townsfolk. They knew him too well to know him at all. The son of a carpenter, brother to our wives, Mary's boy, they witnessed and heard the miraculous, but it was meaningless because their hearts were hard. 
And that serves as Mark's chosen backdrop to today's passage. The sending out of the twelve and, strangely enough, the beheading of John the Baptist. But not just this story, right? Everything, everything written in Mark pushes us toward this commission. If we look back, here's a brief summary. John's message, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus' baptism and God's voice from heaven declaring Jesus as his son. Firstborn son was a title previously reserved for the people of Israel, and now God puts that, he gives that to Jesus as the only faithful Israelite. Jesus' call to repentance. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you see how all these things are building toward the, mi- the mission of the disciples? Then there's the actual call of the disciples in Mark 3. He chooses the 12. He casts out demons. He heals many diseases. There's the resistance of the ruling elite. He teaches through parables. And the disciples are witness to the storm calmed and the demoniac released and the little girl raised from the dead. And then Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. Mark 6, 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. To our knowledge, Jesus never returns to Nazareth. He simply moves on. He continues his work. He continues to call Israel to repentance. And then in verse 7, it says, He calls the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And this is their practicum. They've done some in-work, in-class work, and now it's their on-the-job training. Roll up your sleeves, get your feet wet, hands dirty, elbows greased, spread your wings, learn to fly, that kind of thing. But here's the point. Jesus says, go, and they go. Mark doesn't write this just for the historical record. Mark writes his gospel to make disciples, so that when you and I see Jesus healing the blind and casting out demons and proclaiming repentance because of the kingdom of God, We've seen it done. We've seen it in action. And ultimately, we bear witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus tells you and I, go, we go. These might be baby steps for the 12, but this is a primer for hundreds of thousands perhaps millions upon millions of Christians who have similarly been chosen by God to tell of his wonders and his goodness to our kindred and our townsfolk. Two by two, Jesus sends them. And it's for security's sake and for camaraderie, partners on the journey. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one 
because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. But Jesus also sends them in pairs to establish truth, to satisfy the law, because a testimony must be verified by two or three witnesses, and they are giving testimony. There's all sorts of verses that point to this, Numbers 35, 30, and Deuteronomy 17, 6, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. In Mark 6, 9, 8 and 9, it says, He charges them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He tells them to travel light, the poor sent to the poor. That's always been the way that the message gets spread. His disciples are to walk unencumbered by worldly things. If anyone has ever moved from one house to another, you know just how much stuff we unwittingly acquire. You may have realized just how much your possessions possess you. My father was part of the last generation to farm by horse and plow. As a little guy, he drove a team of horses for his dad. And he tells me that his father used to say, if you have a horse, you have horse problems. Forgive me if I've said this before. I think this is just so poignant to life. It is to say, if you have a horse, you have to take care of it. You have to keep it. You have to feed it. You have to look after its every need. And in a very real way, you serve the horse. Can you see how your possessions possess you? Everything you own must be kept, cared for, looked after, and you end up serving your stuff. If you have a house, you have house problems. If you have a tree, you have tree problems. A car, you have car problems. A wife or <laughs> a wife or a husband, well, then you have a solution to all your problems. You and I are on a mission. If you are a believer, a disciple of Christ, then Jesus has said, go. And the things that we have are not to hold us back. They are to be an aid, perhaps a comfort, but they are to have no hold on us, no hold on us, rather. They are not to possess us, for that is solely the realm and jurisdiction of our King. So Jesus sends his disciples. But what Mark cleverly describes is a second exodus. The few things that Jesus permits on the journey were specifically the few things that God told the Hebrews to take on their flight from Egypt. Exodus 12:11. In this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You shall eat in haste it is the Lord's Passover. Like the Israelites in the wilderness or the prophets of old, the, 
The disciples are sent with next to nothing so that they will learn to live in utter dependence upon God. They are to depend. You and I are to depend depend upon God for every provision. And as they learn to trust Him to provide for all their needs, it's a living message to everyone that they meet. God will provide for all your needs. And they are sent in haste, just like the Israelites. Their message is an urgent one. Verses 10 and 11, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. We tend to read this and think of the burden of hospitality imposing oneself on the kindness of others for an extended period of time. Why not move from house to house is what's in my head. Lighten the load. But Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 40, 41a, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The point of this is not the burden or the blessing, though. It's this. The disciples were not to go from place to place looking for an upgrade. By staying in one house, the tendency to look for better accommodations or nicer food is eliminated. Their comfort was not to be the focus. And in staying where they were first welcomed, there's a gratitude to both God and the host. Further, if they were not welcomed, they were to follow Jesus' own example. When he was asked to leave Gerasene, he did so without protest. When he was rejected in his hometown, he left and did not return. In this manner, Jesus' followers were to shake off the dust of the unrepentant, as a sign and a symbol that they had been well-warned, and thus they were responsible for their own filth. But it's at this point that Mark does the unexpected. He makes a sandwich. It's not a BLT or a ham and cheese, but he might not be kosher at this point. What he's doing is he's making a literary sandwich. It's called an intercalation. He splits the story of the mission of the apostles in half. And actually, there was one more verse that Easton could have read that, that outlines the return of the disciples after this mission. So he splits this in half. They're sent out and they come back. But right in the middle of that, he places the story of John the Baptist's beheading. It's bookends. It's a sandwich. It's an Oreo cookie of sorts. Mark 6, 12 to 16 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now here's the transition. King Herod heard. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why, oh, did I jump? 
Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like the ones of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, it's John whom I beheaded. He has been raised. Now, this little story is jam-packed with crazy stuff. But first of all, we have to know that the Herod that's being talked about here is Herod Antipas. He's one of Herod the Great's sons. Herod the Great ruled over all of Judea, and you might remember his efforts to kill all the little Hebrew boys under two years old when the wise men told them that they saw a star over Bethlehem. Now, when Herod the Great died, he willed his kingdom into four quarters, three parts for three sons and a fourth for a sister of his. And right out of the gate, Mark makes a joke. He calls this, this Herod king. But Matthew and Luke get it right. They call him tetriarch, ruler of a quarter, a fourth. Herod Antipas was never actually made king. And history tells us that later on, goaded by his wife Herodias, he asks for the title of king like his dad. And Caesar Augustus refuses him and in a hilarious twist actually takes away the position altogether. So much for the little king and his little kingdom. But here and now, we learn that John the Baptist is dead. And amidst a swirl of superstition and fear, we are told that Herod believes Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, Herod Antipas is the very definition of perplexing. He fears John because he's righteous, but he gladly hears him nonetheless. And what does he hear? When John talks, well, the language tells us that again and again, John rebukes him for stealing his brother's wife. And this passage also tells us that John in prison, sorry, Herod imprisons John, not out of vengeance, but to keep him safe from his wife's anger. Herodias had a grudge against him. She's quite a peach. Now, Mark gives us the backstory. But an opportunity, and it actually looks like she orchestrates the whole thing, but they call it an opportunity, came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and that's trouble. She pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And if you ever become king, the book will say, never say this. 
the manual for being a king will definitely say never offer up half your kingdom in a silly vow, but it happens here. And she went out, and she asked her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If you live a prophet's life, you might die a prophet's death. And John came as a voice crying in the wilderness, a prophet of God, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And when people ask John, what does that even mean? Luke 3 records his response, and it's repent. Repent. God is coming. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's saying these stones are more faithful than you. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is where they ask. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is at hand to clear this threshing, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, added to this, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. To Herod, John said, repent. Repent of your adulterous marriage and all the other evil things that you have done. 
for the Lord's winnowing fork is at hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Herod caves to his wife, and he has John killed. And when his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. And now for the other half of the sandwich. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. The sending out of the twelve and the beheading of John the Baptist seem totally unrelated, but Mark deliberately links them. Here's the link. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus calls himself a prophet, and by extension, his disciples are to do what he does. Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So the Lord Jesus takes his stand alongside the prophets of God. In Matthew 23... Jesus says to the Pharisees this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you build tombs, of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the day of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you, Jesus, sends the prophets and the wise men and scribes and some of you will be killed and some crucified and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may be all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Luke 11 adds a little key to this. Therefore also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the charge, sorry, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. 
from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. It's the wisdom of God that does this. The wisdom of God sends his prophets, sends John, sends Christ, sends you and I. The prophets are sent to suffer. So we see John the Baptist is not just Jesus' forerunner, the one heralding his coming, but his ministry serves to foreshadow Jesus' own. Both preach repentance. Both were imprisoned by weak-willed rulers. As Herod was reluctant to execute John, a righteous man, so too was Pilate hesitant to kill Jesus, a man without guilt. As Herodias orchestrated an opportunity to kill John, so too did the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians conspire to kill Jesus. Both lived proclaiming the will of God. Both ended up in a tomb. Both died proclaiming the will of God. The hope, though, is that Christ was raised. As I said at the beginning of the message today, Mark does not just write a history of discipleship. These are the things that Jesus and his disciples did. In fact, he writes a manual for discipleship. These are the things that you as Christ's disciples need to know and do. In sandwiching the story of the sent apostles around the story of John's execution, Mark casts the shadow of death upon the mission of the twelve. And in doing that, he casts the shadow of death over the mission of the church. We are called to be lambs to the slaughter. Only true disciples of the suffering servant Jesus Christ are willing to suffer themselves. Sacrifice means loss, pain, death. But we serve at the pleasure of the king. So if my death serves God and his purposes more than my life does, why would I not offer it. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, anyone would come after me. Let him de deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Taking up one's cross means death. It's commonly confused these days with the statement, this is my burden to bear, like a hard job or an old knee injury. But that is not your cross to bear. In Jesus' day, if someone was carrying a cross, it meant they were about to die. Do you want to save your life? 
so that you can play with your many toys, well, then you will lose it. Perhaps you already have. What created thing could possibly be of more value in this life, here and now, than Jesus? We are to take stock. Not only are we called to die to self-interest, to the old self, the old man, the flesh that keeps us bound to our sin, but the Christian is also called to be ready to die for their convictions, to stand before kings and countrymen proclaiming God's excellent truth and to be ready to die. In talking about the last days, Jesus says to his disciples, Mark 13, 9 through 11, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. If we trust that the Holy Spirit will give us theology in these moments where we stand before mighty people, can we not trust that he'll look after us? The Bible records the deaths of only two disciples, Judas Iscariot and James. Both were violent, terribly violent. But extra-biblical histories tell us that all the disciples were killed brutally in the service of the gospel, with the exception of John, who might have died naturally of old age, but in prison. The twelve are sent out and come back. It's the start of their mission. A mission that ends just like their saviors in almost every case. And this is what the gospel does. It transforms mere humans into mere Christians. Simple servants. That's who we are. People who are willing to live and die for their Lord's glory. Unencumbered by the regular baggage of this world. The Christian trusts their health, their family, their possessions, their dreams, their actions, and even their words to the faithfulness of their king. Jesus, the only righteous person, died a sinner's death to buy the pardon of actual sinners like you and me. And his resurrection is the promise that he was spotless, that he accomplished the whole law, that he traded for our freedom, his life. And he secured our resurrection unto glory. This same gospel speaks to you today. What will you do? John Wesley, 
and later on the Gideons, are often quoted as saying that the Christian ought to be ready to preach, pray, or die within five minutes. What a mission. Paul explains it this way to the Philippians. Philippians 1.20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here's our life's work. When you live, live to the glory of God and to the love of your fellow Christian. When you die, die for the glory of God and for the love of your fellow Christian. Paul continues, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Why does Mark sandwich the sending of the twelve around the execution of John the Baptist? Because one begets the other. God has said go. It's a commission of both life and death for John, for Jesus, for you and me. Now, I don't know how to give you courage. I don't know where that comes from, what you can squeeze to be mighty in that moment. But if you spend time with other Christians, perhaps older Christians that have walked this walk longer than you and I, some of it might rub off. If you spend time with fellow believers, you will be built up in the faith. If you spend time in the Word and in prayer, this kind of courage will come. I'm afraid, though, that for some of us, this is not exciting. 
We don't want anything to do with suffering or death for our king. And I'll tell you that that is warning. Your soul's in danger if this does not lift you. Let's pray. God, the task is great, but you are greater. The challenge scares us, but you say, take heart, I have overcome the world. Father, we like our little lives. Help us to like you, to love you, to want you more than anything in this created world. Lord, get us deeper into your word, deeper into each other's lives. Let us encourage one another toward righteousness, toward holiness, toward the shedding of all things that would distract. Lord, we want the courage of John, the steady stare of Christ. Lord, we need your spirit because this stuff is beyond us. But we do carry the promise that you will be with us, actually with us, Right, right to completion. Till you come get us or call us home. We want to serve you, Lord. Amen.